0: Hi, welcome to Clodicast. My name is Audrey Clody. This podcast aims to break down science, history, and politics with the help of experts. Join with me today is Afghanistan native and political expert Mujib Na'abib. Mujib and I are going to discuss the political ideologies and forces leading up to US foreign occupation in Afghanistan. I hope this podcast gives you a different light on the situation and gives you hope and ways to think about the future of Afghanistan. Enjoy. All right. Thank you for joining me today, Majeeb. First off, I'd just like to ask, what is your background? Um, How did you get to your field of interest, uh, where you're from? and uh, what you're doing now
1: yeah no totally Thank, thanks for having me on the show Ajay, and uh, thanks for showing interest in afghanistan um so i'm uh, mujib Abid. i uh, am currently a phd candidate um, at the university of queensland um, but previously my background's uh, educational background and to some extent professional background started in afghanistan where i did a bachelor's um uh, at a particular university that was quite unique for the context there because uh, you know the faculty and the people behind it were mostly Americans and the American government Uh, and then once I finished that I did it in political science and public administration I I, then afterwards I I got a scholarship to come and do a master's in peace and conflict studies at the University of Sydney Uh, that was back in mid 2013 when I got here I got there. Um, And then I, I, after finishing that program, I worked for a couple of years um, teaching uh, primarily uh, at the Western Sydney University, the college, and then also doing some other stuff on the side, and and then I moved to Brisbane to uh, continue at that stage, this is early 2018, Uh, my my PhD work uh, for the University of Queensland and I've been here ever since.
0: So, did you go back to Afghanistan after uh, after you did your studies in Australia?
1: I I only I only went back like to to visit.
0: Okay. Um,
1: yeah, I I didn't you know because I managed to get a job kind of like uh, not not soon after uh, finishing the master's program. There was a there was an in between period which I, I think people of our age are quite familiar with, <laughs> but uh, yeah. I, I was very lucky I, I got a job I think when was it I think with like February or maybe even January of 2015 and it was a good good job It's something that I, I wanted and I was I was happy to you know teach undergrad students and, and then I stayed there for like three years. And then
0: is your is your family with you in Australia as well, or are they majority in Afghanistan.
1: Well Aj, they're with me now uh, yeah. and it's a pretty dr- dramatic story because. They were all evacuated as part of this recent um, evacuation of civilians from Kabul. Um, right. But before that, I had no family here with me. I, I you know, I, uh, I suppose as is common with a lot of students who end up being immigrants. You know, uh, we kind of learn to live on our on our own, and uh, that's how it was for me until very, very recently, until this past August. Um,
0: that's very when
1: I, good. I, yeah it's 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 oh my god it's it's such a um such a fortunate um place to find yourself to be with family and also as things are really going out of hand at home the political upheaval and the sense of chaos uh i mean i was always very worried for my family but now um i think since the taliban takeover it would have been very difficult for me to sit here and see and the family, along with millions of other people. So I'm trying to be cognizant of that, but to see the family go through and then having to live uh, through and with the changes would have been very difficult. So I'm very grateful that we're all uh, reunited, let's say, and living together now in the same city.
0: I I think to set a backdrop of what's happening now, would you mind if we start at around 1933 during the uh, kingdom of uh, Afghanistan do, do you do you feel comfortable sure. speaking about um Zahir Shah and um, his policies with the moderate trying to modernize Afghanistan
1: Of course absolutely but I would say like we got to go a little, a little further back sure. uh, if you want to give give the avancular uh, the so-called avancular period of Zahir Shah's rule Lasted for four decades. Um, right. But if you want to give it the right context, we can go back to um, the previous monarchy um, yeah. that, in many ways, went down in flames. But from its flames emerged the, you know, the so-called Muzahiban uh, dynasty, uh, who was founded by Zahir Shah's father. So before uh, thirty-three, or even before twenty-nine, which I'll get to very briefly here, we have another very important year, 1919. So Afghanistan, while never quite directly colonized, it was uh, under, living under sort of a colonial regional reality, which was the British Raj, Tsarist Russia, though by 1919, of course, we don't have Tsarist Russia any longer. It's the October Revolution and the Leninists have taken over power. But uh, we have with afghanistan has lived kind of under this reality of um moment sometimes direct attempts at colonization but for the most part it's sort of indirect spheric, uh, uh, spherical influence and in kind of politics and uh, uh politics of indirect rule governance and domination but by 1919 so as part of this uh, between afghanistan and the and the raj from 1880, there was an agreement in place whereby the foreign affairs of the country would be dictated by the British Empire in India, and its internal affairs, for the most part, was left to its own devices. And that's how Abdurrahman Khan, the Iron Emir from 1880, who essentially was put into the position of the monarchy or the emirate, he was an emir. Uh, by the British. That's how he ruled basically, right? I don't have to worry about my foreign uh, policy and and at the same time you don't meddle with my domestic policies. But uh, by 1919, um, a new young energetic and uh, highly driven modernist king, Amon Olohon, comes to power after the assassination of his father under very murky, very mysterious uh, sort of Circumstance. uh, circumstance. (laughs) Thank you. Circumstances. Yeah. And he wants the first step that he takes is to declare a jihad against the British Empire because he demands that his country needs to be independent. And of course, he's referring to the foreign policy uh, setting capacity of his own state because he imagines that for the, the only way for the Afghan government to modernize and in many ways to mimic what uh, uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk was doing in at that time um at, at, at the sort of uh, at the end of the uh, life of Ottoman Empire, which was sort of ex, ex, ex yeah, this very extremist this very sort of forceful transitions into Europeanization and westernization He wanted to replicate that for Afghanistan and this is an image that we see constantly kind of brought back this infatuation, Uh, almost fetishization of the image of a westernized Afghanistan, of a Europeanized and modernized Afghanistan, and Amon Lohan was at the forefront of, of this agenda in many ways, he set its terms for decades and over a century to come, and now where we stand, right? And he actually manages to um, gain the independence of the country by sending in some troops, but they're mostly for show. It's a performance. The British kind of easily gives him what he wants, uh, and that leads to a decade of uh, this forceful transition policies that forcefully uh, attempt to trans to, to to modernize the country. And it's you know at times it is expressed and kind of meaningful perhaps or justifiable interventions uh, when it comes to say the taxation or the you know democratization to some extent of the political process there is the there are these elections that are being taken place there is the uh, constitution of the country that at its time is quite uh, dramatically progressive Uh, but there are other ways that that infatuation finds expression in very immature a very artificial and very superficial kind of schemes towards transformation. I'll give you an example. Uh, coming into the city, uh, or at least coming into Kabul, for example, people at one point were demanded to wear Western clothes, you know, uh, with, with the whole suit and the hat and boots and the whole thing. Or women, for example, were forced to unveil, um, yeah, or in other circumstances, um the Shah himself took these very dramatic kind of steps to uh look down upon and demean those around him and even his own subjects who he thought weren't open enough to modernization and things like that, and this you know uh, Irrespective of perhaps where Amon Lohan's sensibilities lie, it obviously resulted in a backlash, a very dramatic and very violent backlash at times. And, you know, he, he managed to repress a few of them, but by the end, he just couldn't. His state didn't have the the, the type of power to repress all of it and by 1929 the public uprising essentially forces him to abdicate and then even though he tries to make a comeback it's just it it, it fails his own people in the south do not stand with him there are accounts of him standing in kandahar in front of an audience of tribal leaders and just tribal people um, they basically demanding of them to come stand by 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 their kin and they just basically look the other way. It seems, um, and and at one point uh, in late twenty nine, he decides to go into exile. What that leads them to is because of the type of reaction that um, his actions, I suppose, his sort of uh, excessive uh, and very performative attempts at modernization of the country, the type of reaction that it uh, it generated. Uh, at that time, anyway, the next nine months or so is a period of um, a nativist polity or political order that uh, and as a reaction to the, the, the young modernist king who was always ready to look to elsewhere for inspiration towards reimagining Afghanistan. Now we have a man and a team of sort of local political elite around him. Who are looking only inwards towards reimagining Afghanistan. You see, so there is this sort of binary, and both of them are willing to go towards a more fundamentalist source of political inspiration. Uh, and that's where Zar Shah's father, um, uh, the, the late uh, Muhammad Nader, Nader Khan, who would after taking power, rename uh, himself, I suppose, uh, Nader Shah. Uh, he comes into power and the thing that leads to the period of tranquility that, that some historians have called it the, the decades of tranquility um, those four decades that I was referring to uh, I think the reason that it was what it was was because the Musahiban family the Musahiban dynasty they had kind of experienced the two extremes what it means to go to either of the two extremes excessive westernization or sort of this nativist exclusively inward looking polity and i think they were quite aware of that and they wanted to strike a balance between the two um and although another shah himself was assassinated most likely by a loyalist to the modernist king so we can imagine that extremism doesn't just always come from let's say an islamic or a traditional sensibility uh, which was they were easily vanquished by by the coming to power of the musahiban but it was the modernists who were loyal to Amun Lohan and his sort of imaginary for what Afghanistan could or should look like, they were the ones who were quite difficult to repress. Um, these were the, uh, you know, uh, for example, one of the brothers of um, not this Nader Shah, the Shah's dad was assassinated in Europe. And then of course, another, another Shah himself was assassinated on the grounds of uh, school during a visit. Uh, by someone who, I think uh, a lot of people would agree, was uh, by association of some other folks, but who was quite closely associated or aligned with uh, Amon Lohon, and uh, so that, that's, in, that's in 1933, right? Uh, and that's when we see this young man, I think he was only 17. Uh, he is being christened as the new Amir, the new Shah. Not even Amir anymore. We have Shahs now. We have Kings uh, to replace his father. But he's just a young boy, um, Zor Shah, this, that is. And instead of uh, Zor Shah himself, of course, taking in the taking the reins of power uh, and and essentially to govern, he was incapable of that. So we have his uncles, the brothers of Nader Shah. Uh, who rule on, in his stead until he comes of age and until he essentially figures out things, which uh, takes quite a long period of time. It it it, it takes almost, um, you know, it takes a good, from 33 to 53, that's how long it takes for the period of the avuncular rule or the uncle's rule to end and for the new generation to kind of uh, rise to the occasion. But the crux of it is that it is about striking a balance, and I feel like they managed to do that, especially when it came to social reforms. Because a lot of the backlash against Amun Lohan had to do with the uh, nature and visibility, perhaps, of his so-called social reforms, which took things out. He he was willing to take on things like traditional gender roles or uh, traditional dress codes or even sort of uh, a commitment, a visible public commitment to Islamicity or Islamic identity and traditional orders. These were all things that kind of stood out from his other, perhaps even more sensible, let's say, economic reforms. When it came to uh, all women's education, you know, uh, admirable as, as as it was, uh, uh, the, the way I think uh, the Amani period, Amani monarchy approached it, was uh, perhaps always going to uh, strike uh, some sort of uh, discomfort, let's say, collective discomfort, for a society that had been isolated, that that, that had lived kind of with uh, its own realities, quite blocked off from the reality of the wider world uh, as a result of the British Raj and its policies towards Afghanistan for decades at that stage.
0: Just in a quick recap, we have Aman Lahan who is trying to force a Mm -hmm. uh, globalist and modern, like a forceful um, modernization of Afghanistan to people who were used to very traditional roles or very traditional upbringings and cultures. And then um, he lost popularity. And then when he uh, left his throne, the person who came to power next that was Nader Shah's father, is that correct?
1: There's an in-between period, a nine-month period of rule by a man, uh, Habibullah Khan, or some call him Habibullah Kalakoni. He's also known um, by, sort of it's not a language that I necessarily condone, but he's also known as Habib, the son of the water carrier. But that implies that I think goes to show what his class origins were. He was just a common man. Was uh finds himself leading a bunch of uh, tribal militias uh from the north of Kabul, and he manages to wrest power away from the modernist king. But mm-hmm. uh, there are accounts, of course, uh, that's uh, are there of his approach to power, which tended to be extremely inward-looking and nativist and traditional. You know, it, it, to to a fault. Uh, for I'll give an example of what. Kalakani, uh, that for example, in the grounds of the um, uh, uh, palace, uh, the 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 royal palace, uh, the you know the the westernized monarch, of course, values as you can imagine, uh, neat gardening and uh, you know fancy pathways and just uh, sort of that that uh, sense of order that comes with the <laughs> cadence, the, the decadence. Yeah. Thank you. Um, But like Calaconi goes and basically says, no, none of this, this is, this doesn't sit well with our sensibilities. This is good land that should be put to some good use. So now we are going to take away, throw away all this farming, all this gardening, all this decadence, as you put it so nicely. And instead we are going to plant fruits and vegetables here because that's what our country needs, right? So there's a different sensibility that comes with that. Uh, Cucumbers or roses. Yeah. Yeah. But that's that's how he was doing. So there's that in between period, very important. Some have called it a period of civil war. I don't know if it is or not, but um, and it's it starts in early two, uh, 1929 and kind of finishes by late 29.
0: And then how how does this transition to the next um, the next monarchy? What happens there? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, look, uh, there are parallels, Ajay to what happened then and what's going on right now. Every time there is a power, there's a a force uh, that comes to bear its face in in, in Afghanistan that is uh, visibly and perhaps uh, violently committed to uh, a materialization of traditional sensibilities into a political power in afghanistan uh, there is backlash against that especially the way that kalakoni did it and i want to be careful here okay because when once kalakoni comes to power because of perhaps the genuineness in his approach to power that comes with that traditional sensibility it's not a game anymore it's not a it's not a it's not a great game let's say between states as self-interested actors, the language of power that we have learned from the Western through colonization and modernization. That traditional approach to power doesn't subscribe to the same sort of um, knowledge perspective. All right? Instead, it believes that on its own merits, uh, it can organize society and it can organize a state or a polity that is then... um, tasked with governing that society and it doesn't have to take its cues from any western master text or cultural sort of set of priorities uh, that attitude right there uh, is enough to uh, to 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 cause a, a type of backlash from the modernist powers of the day or the colonialist powers of the day what happened to kalakoni before soon he was entirely isolated from the rest of the world. The British Raj did not want anything to do with him. Uh, The Soviets at the time did not want anything to do with him. Uh, (coughs) Excuse me, the Persians who were still quite a power, regional power at the time, uh, because of their uh, proximity to these two powers that I just mentioned, they did not want anything to do with him. So he was left Alone, or, or, or the Kalakani monarchy was left alone, isolated and exposed. And it was only a matter of time uh, before uh, his, 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 his uh, monarchy would also come crumbling down. And that's exactly how it happened. I mean, it, it got so crazy that there are accounts, and we don't talk about this enough, but there is a period quite early on when the Soviets basically send in troops to the country, uh, to one of the loyalists of Amon Lohan to try to wrest power away from this um, you know, traditional parochial man who was going to ruin everything that Amon Lohan tried to achieve over the last decade, violent as they may have been, and of course, the reaction to the violence that uh, you know, to them anyway, symbolized and stood for. Uh, I'm, I say that there are strong parallels between now and then because that's exactly in many ways where Taliban stand right now, especially the Taliban of the late 90s. Maybe there is a case to be made. Maybe it's too early to make this case but perhaps for uh, for argument's sake we can't say the taliban have changed now and they're more aware of international imperatives um of of, of sort of uh, custodianship of the state or running a state in the 90s certainly they couldn't care less you know you, you you antagonize the taliban in late 90s they that's they were aware of that and they would behave in ways that were um quite contradictory to the uh let's say, predictable path of uh, a self-interested state's actions. Um, and in many ways, what the Taliban were in the 90s, perhaps even right now, but that's the case. I don't know, we, we should wait a little longer to make that case. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but the Taliban and kalakoni in many ways, they were parallel to that. They irk the ire of a lot of powerful modernist Western states, and that is bad uh, for attempts to reproduce and sustain yourself as a state and that's what happened to um Kalakoni and Zair Shah's father was uh, put into power uh, in fact he was uh, propped up and supported to remove this man from power by the british now you have okay. to understand he 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 they his whole family they had strong ties with india they they traveled back to afghanistan through india from europe because they were all in europe at the time even though they were in strong positions of power with Amon lohans uh, uh, monarchy, but by uh, 29, so they came back to India, they were supported, they were p- put into contact with the right people. And uh, as soon as they came into power, the British Raj was more than happy to recognize the new monarchy and give it legitimacy.
0: So basically, the Nadir Shah's father, Nader Shah and Zahir Shah's Um, dynasty are propped on the backs of the British Raj at that time, to, And I guess they would say that's an opportunity for them to, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but at that time, the British were also afraid of Soviet expansion um, towards Central Asia. And that's why they were trying to prevent the, um, I guess, the Afghan state from interacting with the Soviets at that time am i am i
1: am i right (laughs) um well well i I suppose uh you are right in the sense that like the soviet union was the first country in 1919 that recognized afghanistan's independence and agreed to establish diplomatic ties um it's also about uh the soviet policy at the time which would change with with the Stalinist regime uh, later on but at least but at least by that time the Soviets were uh, the Soviet Union that is was quite its policies were quite closely aligned with the colonized world or with independence movements within the colonized world. And so in that sense you can imagine that there was always a fear that they would find a foothold, And in Afghanistan, that was actually independent quite ahead of its time, if you compare it to other regional uh, societies, let's say, you know, the Hindustan, for example, obviously 47 um, Sri Lanka later on. Um, Iran, although independent, had the strange relationship with uh, with with British and later on the Americans. Uh, so uh, Afghanistan was a place also that was quite active uh, in the in the 20s, sort of that you know that decade of the first decade of independence. It played at least there are moments when you see that there is a lot of anti-colonialist fervor that is coming from this place. That is on the one hand modernist, so it's quite contradictory, right? So Amun-Loham on the one hand looked to the European cultural sensibilities. Uh, as a source of inspiration for progress and uh, prosperity. But on the other hand, he stood uh, fervently against colonization and colonialism and uh, blamed it for the woeful condition of not only Afghanistan, but the Muslim world or, or perhaps the global south as a whole. And you see there are these moments when Afghanistan serves either as a host to, I don't know if you know, Ajay, about the Khilafat movement, which was a, a Muslim-dominated movement for independence in the subcontinent, and uh, we see quite early on that uh, you know tens of thousands of Khalafat movement uh, folks travel to Afghanistan, and Amolochan is more than happy, at least initially, to promise them um, refuge from the oppression of the British Raj, and it's a very powerful symbolic moment to see a small, in many ways insignificant. Uh, but independent Muslim state, modernist Muslim state, which is willing to engage in these great, incredibly risky political games. Uh, A little later, uh, he also does the same for the uh, Basmachi movement, which is a similar movement of Muslim Turkic-speaking folks from Central Asia, which which obviously, as it's being taken over, uh, are being sort of incorporated within the soviet union the newly consolidated soviet union uh, there are muslims who feel disenfranchised and they are willing to resist violently in case of the Basmachi movement and again afghanistan serves as a host to you know thousands of, of uh, Basmachi movement members who come to so there's always this fear but you have to understand that uh, you know afghanistan still is a muslim society uh, irrespective of who is in position of power, whether it's this sort of nativist Kalakoni or this modernist uh, Amon Lohan, uh, there are moments when you can clearly see that they're willing to stand against um, imperialist forces irrespective of their ideological dispositions, even though Soviet Union was by a matter of policy a lot closely aligned with the colonized uh, people.
0: Just want to quickly yeah. move on to uh sahir shah's period where um i think there was so according from to what you said before he was quite young at the time around 17 was that correct yeah i think so he ascended to the throne and he was um i guess you could say guided by his advisors at that time to find a balance between modernization but also uh keeping to traditional and cultural beliefs what sort of policies um helped i guess modernize uh, afghanistan from that period and um what happened towards the end of that era and i think at that end Mm-mm. of the era you started to see a foreign more foreign involvement um yeah. trying to take over afghanistan correct
1: yeah 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 no look at it um I think this is the tragedy of Afghanistan, right? So well, I want us to be careful here, but the way that um, the Zaire Shah period comes about, those are where, those sort of, the, on the back of this uh, two different um, uh, diametrically opposed, let's say, political um, forces, one excessively, uh, extremely, uh, w- Westernized in its approach to power or Eurocentric, let's say, in its approach to power, the other one extremely uh, native in its approach to power. It's both, so it's, sha it's Shah, he's, his sort of period, uh, or, or his approach, or his uncle's, let's more, more uh, properly approach to power, um, so they are, we're, I'm referring to like Hashim Khan, who was perhaps the most influential of uncles, and he was the first prime minister, and then you kind of make your way to Shah Mahmood and then uh, others who would follow later on. But look, they wanted to strike a balance. My thing how, how it started was a gradualist approach to reform. And uh, the, the uh, building blocks of this was put in place by Nader Shah himself, was quite aware of the forces in his society. And I think there was always You can't obviously claim that there was no commitment to a broader modernization agenda. It was always in place, it was just that the approach I think was quite different from what um, the previous two polities has been, or was, by them. They wanted to take a more incremental approach, one that did not incite uh, uh, social unrest and backlash from the traditional tribal elements from the society. Um, and look, it, it, it must have been difficult decisions to make at the time. For example, they called a lot of girls who were sent abroad for education back into the country. Uh, they, for a while, closed uh, uh, what they call in Afghanistan, Naswan, uh, Maktab and Naswan, uh, or female schools for a while, because that was a, a big turn um, uh, on, 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 you know, that... that on the side of Ammanullah I suppose, or against Amal Khan back when he was in power. Um, also, when it came to sort of traditional dress codes and uh, a more expressive, a more public uh, uh, declaration of faith in the Hanafi school of jurisprudence or school of law within um, Islamic fiqh, uh, all of that, they, they were willing to do that. And they, I think they, they they were quite successful in that. But because of that broader commitment, and look, this is a very deep conversation, and I actually uh, deal with this in my own uh, thesis uh, in in much greater detail. But on the one hand, we have this sort of broader commitment by the ruling class towards modernization. The argument is we will eventually get there. It's just that it will take us a little longer. So our approach doesn't have to be revolutionary, right? It has to be incremental. And I think that is, I condone that. I think that works quite well with a society like Afghanistan. I think that in many other uh, third world, formerly colonized countries, I think that's the approach uh, that must be taken. Because as as you take your time as the ruling elite, you also, I think, don't commit too many mistakes in in terms of um, repressing traditional sensibilities. In many ways, traditional sensibilities, in my perspective, uh, it's that unique subaltern knowledge perspective that will, that will deliver us from a lot of the crises that the modern world has produced, right? And we're living the real, under its reality right now. Uh, so, so it started as that, but first there was this wider commitment to a modernization um, that will bear uh, not very good fruits for, for Afghanistan as a whole, for the ruling class down the line by the sixties, let's say. The other thing that happened was there were a lot of people who were working with Amon Lohan. They were referred to, broadly speaking, as young Afghans, a derivative of the term young Turks from the, you know, the Republicanism in Turkey. Now, the young Afghans were staunch, ardent modernists who always looked to Europe, its master texts, its cultural priorities, its even local histories um, uh, in terms of reimagining, you know, casting a new image onto Afghanistan. Um, and a lot of those folks actually, although initially perhaps they were sidelined, some of them were put into prisons and things like that. Uh, but before you know it, by 53, uh, when there is a change in the leadership within the dynastic family, in terms of who, be- who is the prime minister, who is the sadrism, uh, uh, a new man comes into power who is actually a lot, a lot more lenient. And he believes that now is the time to kind of Uh, Is Some of the uh, push back against social more visible social reforms, and one of the things that that does is it empowers a lot of the old young Africans and puts them in key positions of power. Now these folks enjoying the sort of newfound freedom, and there is also like a new Parliament and elections and it's problematic, but there are these kind of changes that are taking place by 1964. We have a new constitution, one of the most liberal, one of the most progressive in the whole of the global South at the time. Certainly, in the whole of the Muslim world, uh, that uh, also signifies, at long last, the coming to power or the uh, sort of uh, maturation of Zahir Shah himself as a as a as a king, as the face of the society, as the uh, reigning sort of monarch or sovereign. Right, but by sixty four. Again, it's important what happened in the 50s, but by 64, we now have drafted and passed a new very liberal, very progressive constitution. We have democratized society such that we can hold genuine uh, elections that allows everyone, all political sides to have um, a representation in the political process. Uh, We are also now by 64 quite ready to restart some of those social reforms and wider reform programs of the Amani period. I think the Zahar Shah ruling elite felt like they, now was the time, and even if there was backlash, that we could repress it. But by then, things had changed a lot. We have to understand that a lot of two streams of political thought had made very strong inroads in the society. Urban, as perhaps these limited as they were perhaps to urban centers and the educated middle class, but these were strong political um, uh, inroads that were made. One was Marxism and primarily uh, coming from sort of the Leninist Marxist um, kind of um, ideological uh, the trajectories. And the other, the other one was a, a more side kind of uh, political Islam or Islamism that had made inroads through Egypt and then Pakistan and back into Afghanistan. So now we have two opposing ideological forces that have their own followers in the society. They were both revolutionary. They were both modernists. They believed in the transformation, revolutionary transformation of the society, although the image that they had in mind were, of course, um, opposed to one another and quite dramatically different from one another. But the new political freedoms that were afforded to people and the sort of uh, confidence that the newfound, let's say, confidence that the state had felt it had by 1964. Uh, on the one hand, of course, pointed to the realization of the that that grand scheme vision that the ruling Musahiban elite had for decades. By then, we can always modernize, we can always westernize. We just need to bite our time. We just need to, uh, you know, take our time with it and be incremental about it. On the one hand, that is coming to rea- to 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 materialize. On the other hand. That very materialization of that modernist vision is now given a space for a lot of revolutionary radical political thought to find expression. And that is what led to um, uh, by uh, that, the downfall in 1973, let's say, or, or you know some would say even 78, but certainly in 1973, when uh, Do Thorn who was a cousin of the King Zoer Shah, um, uh, he actually deposes his own cousin, uh, who 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 is already in Europe for some medical, as a, as a, you know, medical needs. He needs to go see doctors or whatever. Um, the cousin uh, is in Kabul. He hasn't been in power for almost a decade, and he calls his king and says, "Don't come back. You know, I, I will I will take it from here." Essentially. And the vision that he has, he he is also known. Dauton is also known as the Red Prince. So he is, I think, that's symbolic, right? So he is red, he's Marxist, but also he's a prince. Uh, quite a quite a contradiction that's there. It, yeah. and that's <laughs> who he was. That's who he was, and that is an expression of of I think the type of political sensibilities that had made inroads in the society at the time. He wanted change. He couldn't quite wait. Uh, as, as, as as much as his uh, uncles or his cousin had for a long time. And uh, he was, I think, stubbornly committed to uh, transformation of the society in as short a period of time as as, as imaginable. That did not bode well at all, uh, because of course it uh, it caused the backlash from the traditional elements of the society. In many ways, the same sort of backlash that Amul Lahon had to deal with. The problem is now, that we have this sort of disenchantment, feeling of collective disenchantment with the state, uh, with the person of Doudhon and what he stood for, his left politics and and also his um, authoritarian approach to power, which I imagine comes from his family background, right? He is part of the monarchy uh, or the dy- dynastic uh, uh, family. It's just that right now he claims that a Republican is what we need and it has to be a a one-party republic, and so on and so forth. That backlash now gets appropriated a by the Islamists, who we shouldn't forget, or the other side of this new revolutionary or new radical political coin. Uh, And so that is what kind of leads to the decades of uh, violent conflict that I I, I think uh, that is what leads to the decades of violent conflict that Afghanistan is going through to this day. 73, Daut Khan comes into power, allied with his socialist friends in one of the factions of the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, which is the Marxist-Leninist Party, the dominant Marxist-Leninist Party in Afghanistan. The party is split into two factions. One of the factions he aligned himself with and he manages to instigate this coup, and it's successful, right? Mm-hmm. By 1978, within a couple of short couple of years. He has isolated all his Marxist friends. He has sent a lot of them into exile, imprisoned others. um, And uh, for himself, he has, uh, I think, secured, if I'm not mistaken, five of the key ministries in the country. And uh, there are really interesting accounts um, by people like Hassan Sharq and so on and so forth of uh, the internal dynamics of that period. There is a lot of potential, there is a lot of, sort of uh, hopes and dreams and aspirations for what Afghanistan could be. But I think by 78, there is also this realization dawning that we have done it again. We've committed the same mistake. We went too extreme and too fast. And now we have to deal with its its consequences. And I think that awareness from some of the accounts you can tell is there in the Doh Khan period. And I think there's also perhaps a degree of remorse about um, betraying the monarchy because of the symbolic value that it had for a lot of people, and because of the perhaps legitimacy that a monarch could enjoy, uh, that a Republican president never could, uh, himself being a prime example of that. Um, And uh, the result is that he is, he himself now gets to experience being at the receiving end of a military coup d'etat in 1978, except that now, and again, this speaks to the sort of radicalization of political grammar and language and practice at the time, not only are the Marxists fully capable of taking over power in a very swift manner, but they don't—they won't stop there. They want to kill him and his entire family because they were loyalists, uh, or royalists, and because, not just royalists, but they are the royal family or what remains of it. So we have this horrible bloodbath at the presidential palace in, uh, of Alg, which is still stands and still is the presidential palace in Afghanistan, and Khan and uh, a lot of his family are slain, uh, which is which is quite tragic, but that's when we have, you know, if if Khan was the red prince, there was always kind of that strange dynamic between being a prince and a, a red politician or a Marxist. By 78, we have extremist, um radical Marxists who are in power who would stop at nothing, it seems, to transform, modernize, sovietize, and westernize the country. And they just do that. But always remember, on the other hand, from the beginning of the Khan period, certainly from 1975, when we actually have Islamist traditional uprisings against the the, the republic. Um, On the other hand, we always have this traditionalist backlash against excessive change and transformation uh, that to them is unjustified and only messes with the balance that the traditional society depends on to reproduce itself. And uh, as that happens, we always have an Islamist political elite, most of them educated incidentally in the same educational system that were put in place by the modernist, royalists of the desire shop period and, and onwards. They were empowered by that educational system that was progressive and left-leaning and wanted a, a transformed Afghanistan. It's just that the political master text that are using uh, is anything but, you know, das Kapital.
0: After that period where the coup d'etat occurs and they try to solidify Afghanistan as a red nation, um, can you can we speak and explore how how I think this is that time period where foreign involvement they start to really um, I guess uh, get into power or they try to really influence the set of affairs in Afghanistan is that correct
1: Yeah, so look because of these tensions, very real, very consequential tensions between the different sort of forces in society by seventy eight. Um, you know what starts as a sort of bombastic entry let's say by the marxists into power you know for example they were they were keen to and they did not see any problem at changing the flag of the of the country into one that was just a red uh, piece of cloth or they would go into these extremely theatrical political rallies that were clearly uh, architectured by the people in power but they wanted to you know a a very it had a very strange but a very naziist kind of approach uh to political rallies and signs of loyalty to the new state and its modernization schemes uh that of course were now designed to be around um, the empowerment of uh workers and, and farmers and so on and so forth but that that was not going to last very long. And it was very clear. Amun Law experienced it. I think Nader Shah and Zahra Shah to some extent were cognizant of it. Um, I think Dawood Khan towards the end realized it. And now the Marxists, they were going to realize it. And on top of that, the Marxists, remember I said they had two factions. They were divided. So right before their coup d'etat in 78, The Soviets actually mediated between the two, and so they were reunited, and that's how they could manage to instigate uh, this coup d'etat, successful April coup d'etat. But by 1979, so within a year and a half or so period of time, uh, the Political party of the Marxists went back into their. They went back into their separate ways. Their differences seemingly were too big, um, and we, we don't have to get into too much of what those differences were. But it is not that uncommon for uh, leftist, you know, revolutionary political parties to split along political, you know, and sometimes real, sometimes imagined lines of difference. And I think it's it was a combination of those two in the case of the PDPA or People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan as well. But right now, because they were in power and they were, they were no longer just uh, struggling political party on the sidelines, uh, To for those splits to materialize, it had very real consequences. So a lot of the Parcham faction were exiled or imprisoned or certainly put out of power by late 1979. And the only person standing, because within the other faction as well, there was discontent and very violent contestations over who would be the number one person in the in the country. So, you know, a student would kill or assassinate his own so-called teacher. It's just that it's too bad that that teacher was the president of the country and the head of the Politburo, and the student was the minister of defense. And then he becomes the president and takes over all those key roles within the party and the government. But by 79, we were quite... uh, Because as all of these political wranglings are taking place within the party, there is a complete, a total uprising from the countryside that is being increasingly appropriated into the language of Islamist politics, especially by the people at the top. I don't imagine that the subaltern people who are actually doing the fighting or the skirmishes, uh, instigating the skirmishes across the country. They couldn't care less for who said Khotbar or Abu Allah Maududi or it's their Islamist imaginaries for the Muslim world were. They were just, I think, there was a much longer stream of political thought and language that, as I expressed with Amon Lohan and those guys back in the day, they all had to deal with And that was just the reality of a traditional society. But now that that language was being imposed or superimposed on 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 explaining that uh, political sentiments of the of the common people, um, so as there is political discontent within the party, outside there is an uprising that's very real. There are these specific moments in in the western province of Herat, later on and across the country in Panchayat as well, uh, in Kabul as well. Uh, there are all types of political um, instability in the country. And we know that the it's very clear that the communists could no longer sustain the status quo, that they could no longer stay in power. And that's why, based on an agreement that was already in place, oh, you know whatever the legitimacy of an agreement like that could be, that's a different story, but the Soviets decide to invade the country on the eve of Christmas in 1979. So late 1979, the Soviets come to Afghanistan, except that they wouldn't tell the ruling uh, presiding president and head of the Politburo of their plans. So it was an invasion in many ways because the people who were in power had no idea. They were just actually in in this new palace in Zawar aman uh, enjoying a dinner together. That's that's the president and uh, a lot of his uh, cabinet members um there's a whole a lot of drama that happens that night and now we have some clarity as to what happened but essentially it comes down to a bunch of spitnaz or special soviet special forces uh, storming the palace and killing again you see the cycle of bloodshed that that uh, targets the political elite not only the common folks but the political elite as well you know when you when you're dealing with revolutionary power i suppose this is uh, on par uh, with the course, but uh, now uh, the, the the communist um, president of at the time uh, he is killed. Uh, a bunch of his family members are assassinated. Um, they are assassinated by the Soviets, and as, as that is taking place, the rest of the country is being taken over by invading um, you know Red Army. Uh, it's just that alongside and one of their planes which lands in Bagram Air Base, the same Bagram Air Base that we hear about every now and then in Afghanistan. And one of those planes is Babrak Karmal. So Amin is assassinated in the palace. Babrak Karmal, who was the head of the other faction of the Marxist party, he is brought back from exile and then he is introduced as the new president of the country, as the new Marxist head of the state. And that's how kind of things go from there. But although, so, but what basically happens with the presence, with the incoming of the invading army, with the start of the occupation, of course, the uh, political discontent, or at least consequential political discontent within the party, is given an end to, right? There's a sort of finishing period to that. Uh, but the real conflict, which is between a modernizing Sovietizing political force in the capital and uh, which controls other urban centers uh, and provincial capitals of the country, uh, the real conflict is between this force and the more traditional force that is now being expressed in the language of political Islam. So we are seeing the clash between two Uh, radically different revolutionary forces um, at play. Uh, And although the Islamists, of course, they have very little in common with the Americans and their Western allies, let's say with NATO, uh, but there is a marriage of convenience that comes about that was already, they were like, they were even under Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter in late 70s. There was obviously um, a real material help that would come towards the so-called mujahideen. Or the mujahideen, which again even the, la- the name suggests, uh, a jihad or mujahideen um, movement is something that is uh, quite apparent and present throughout Afghanistan's modern history. But it also is a language that could be appropriated uh, uh, for by by Islamist forces. Um, although quite early on, as well, there were help that came towards Mujahideen by the Americans, but once the Soviets invade, then all bits are off and they start, irrespective of the political differences that there clearly existed between the Islamists and the American uh, sort of state, uh, they could just sort of sidestep that and for now enter into an an alliance, a marriage of convenience to take down, or at least I, I would imagine from the American perspective, it was a case of exacting a modicum of revenge for what had happened in Vietnam. Uh, for the Afghans, they just needed support because there was no way that they could have taken on the Soviet Union with all its might and the Marxist revolutionary forces uh, in the country without external help. Now, and now when we talk about external help, we're not just talking about the small state like Pakistan, which perhaps would have supported them uh, irrespective of how things went down. We're talking about a superpower coming to their aid and that's exactly how it happened it was too bad that because of this clash of revolutionary powers over a million afghans lost their lives in, in a decade's time it's too bad that over 7 million some accounts would say were displaced or forced into exile or had to live as refugees and a couple of millions of them still live in, as refugees uh, to this day in, in neighboring countries on in the western a smaller number in the western world it was too bad the infrastructure of the country that the uh, Hebon dynasty and its avancular period and, you know, the entirety of the four decades, the infrastructural uh, projects, um, the development agenda that they had, which in many ways was, you know, especially early on, quite attuned to the realities of the society, that they were destroyed and, uh, you know, transformed into uh, uh, dysfunctional systems roads dams infra, you know you name it um it was too bad a lot of those things happened but you know revolutionary political forces uh have have that potential for this destruction for chaos um and uh, that speaks to the reality on dangers of ideological forces
0: I think around the 90s the us Uh, sorry, the U.S.-backed Mujahideens or the, um, I guess, the Islamist factions that are backed by the U.S. They managed to, um, would you say, drive out the Soviet um, faction around the 90s? And then they would come to form the Islamic um, State or Islamic Emirates of Afghanistan. Could you speak a bit about that too?
1: Yeah, so so a little more happened in between the Islamic Emirate and the Soviets, a very important period. But look, in in 1988, uh, an agreement is struck. It's called the Geneva Accords. And it's struck between um, the Soviet Union, uh, the uh, uh, sorry, it's struck between officially, it's struck between the Kabul. And Islamabad, so the, the government of Afghanistan and Islamabad, and Soviet Union, and the uh, Americans serve as uh, guarantors. And as part of the agreement, the Soviet Union would withdraw all its troops uh, from the country, um, uh, and instead the uh, Americans commit, nominally it seems, that they would stop their interference into the affairs of the country. But anyway, irrespective of the politics of you know, those political agreements and so on and so forth. Uh, by the end of the 80s, the Soviets withdraw all forces from Afghanistan. It speaks to many different realities, of course, uh, internal debates and dynamics within the Soviet Union and its politics as well, it speaks a great deal to that. Uh, fatigue from war. Uh, we are also talking about a different power. We are not talking about a Western force just as, as we just saw, that can muster the stamina to fight on for seemingly 20 years with the same exact outcome. Uh, I think the Soviet Union approached these things a little differently, speaks to many different political sensibilities that were uh, apparent and dominant at the time. Uh, but that's not part of the conversation here. So the Soviets leave, the Americans, uh, so irrespective of what the content of that Geneva Accords were. The Soviet Union continues to prop up its client state in Kabul and the Americans continue to prop up its insurgent forces in in, in the country and region. So from although there are no more an occupation force in the country, the ideological forces and the greater uh, political game between superpowers, you know, the, the reality of the Cold War. Uh, it means that a uh, continuation, in many ways, an intensification of the conflict. Because now both sides, you know, for the Kabul government, it's an existential crisis. If they don't stand their ground, they're all going to go down with the state. And for the insurgents, for the Islamist uh, and traditional uh, forces within the insurgency, um, it is it, they can see they can see the, the finish line. They can see victory. It's right there for the taking. They just need to continue. Uh, with their campaign and uh, uh, I suppose for them from their perspective it was only fortunate that their international backers would, would continue to uh, support them and supply them with weapons and arms and resources and so on and so forth. Um, by 1992 that's it the Soviet Union is no longer so as soon as the Soviet Union is no longer that balance that status quo is raptured and the and 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 the and the, the Marxist state and uh, just like the Soviet Union itself disbands as soon as that happens, immediately afterwards, the Marxist state in Kabul can, cannot sustain itself. So it also uh, is forced into capitulation essentially. And now we have Islamist forces who are in Kabul. It's just that. And again, this is a problem with modern politics when the language of modern politics is appropriated and superimposed onto sort of traditional sensibilities. Uh, Although it was a great victory from the perspective of a lot of the Afghan population and the Mujahideen, but because of the discontent and the political tensions and dynamics that existed within the Mujahideen, they could not agree. Onto a government that was inclusive uh, enough to keep, you know, a majority of the mujahideen happy. So within the mujahideen, there were also intense conflicts over um, who should rule the country and how, and if there is a constitution, what would it look like, or whether we should hold elections or no elections, and whether it should be ruled by council. And there were two long, long sort of uh, conversations that took place there um that this state of affairs and then of course the other thing that has happened which is quite again a a sad reality of uh, a universalization of the nation-state model we value language and identity especially ethnic identity and try to homogenize the society after a certain image let's say right that's what happens like every every nation has its own flag it has its own language it has its own unique proud history Uh, it's it's a homogenous entity as much as we have we've tried to deconstruct some of those assumptions over the last couple of decades the same thing happened with the islamists as well although they were playing they're performing like a commitment to a greater pan-islamic sensibility when it came to their own local politics they were staunchly uh, ethnically conscious linguistically conscious and regionally conscious when it came to their politics. And that does not bode well for a society which is made up of so much diversity and so many language groups and ethnic groups and uh, regional uniqueness uh, like Afghanistan. It just led to more conflict, violent conflict. It's just that now the lines were drawn along identity um, differences. Um, And the Taliban, Ajay this is important right for our conversation for the now the taliban emerges in 1994 so basically there's a two year of absolute chaos and carnage in the country kabul at the time my dad has all these stories mom and dad both of them because they lived through it i was obviously i don't remember much i was just a two-year-old three-year-old child back then but they tell me stories of how for example dangerous it was to be in Kabul at the time, uh, how Kabul was divided into apparently 12 different um, districts that were ruled, each were ruled by a separate and independent uh, faction of the Mujahideen, who were like, you know, shoot at one another at sight. That's the level of, um, you know, discontent that there was, uh, the order of the day at the time, it seemed. But by 1994, Again, you have to remember, all throughout the Afghan modern history, there is the language uh, of, of conventional, let's say, politics and modern history and history writing. There is always this undercurrent of traditionalism that goes underneath everything. And I've been trying to explain that to you too, Ajay. I don't know how well I yeah, managed to I make that come across. Understand that it. undercurrent resurfaces yet again, this time in the name of Taliban. A group of religious clerics and students from the Biu Bandi Madrasa system primarily located in Pakistan all throughout the 80s and then obviously brought back into Afghanistan after the 90s these folks are sick and tired of modern politics it's violence it's revolutionary dispositions it's penchant for sudden and dramatic change it does not sit well with the traditionalism that appreciates familiarity incremental change, change in the image of the local experiences and local embodied sort of sensibilities and subjectivities, not in the uh, the image or name of a bunch of Europeans or Egyptians or Pakistani uh, Islamist political ideologues, right? That's the reality that they're dealing with. And they are like, you see, this is exactly what we're talking about. Even these Islamists are as violent and as revolutionary as their counterparts. So we have no other choice but to resurface, I suppose, as an insurgency or as a backlash to dismantle the forces that have brought on so much carnage and suffering onto our people. That is exactly what Taliban is. Some have described it as a peasant peasant movement. Some some have described it as a traditional uh, nativist movement. Some have described them as uh, wrongly, I should say, as an Islamist slash terrorist movement but the fact is i think they were the embodying uh traditional sensibility that were repressed for far too long and that at the the time embodied the sort of sensible politics that was missing from the scene right at at sensible politics at the time i imagine would have looked like some degree of a break with permanent state of war and uh, within two short years they managed to take over the country with very little bloodshed, which again, resembles something that's going on right now in the country. Uh, sure, there was, the struggle itself was incredibly violent and whatnot, but at the end of it, uh, there was very little bloodshed and the country basically gave in. And that's exactly what happened from 94 to 96. By 96, September of 1996 to be exact, they entered Kabul, uh, they took over the capital, they forced a lot of the uh, Islamists into exile, a bunch of them held on to uh, some sense of regional power in the north, although within the next uh, four to five years, even that base of power was had dwindled quite dramatically and very little of it had existed. Uh, but that's how the, pop, the Taliban started. Um, uh, that's where the origins lie. I'm sure if you listen to uh, you know, Taliban accounts, their own their own internal history, they have these dramatic stories about how certain figures were key to the sudden success of, of this uh, uh, student movement. Uh, but I think we can dissociate uh, the certain sort of broader historical trajectories that have always existed in the modern Afghanistan. We can dissociate that from the, you know, Hegeographic kind of approach to uh, a history of our own movement that's produced by Taliban themselves. I think it it says a lot more about that undercurrent of traditional sensibilities that have always found itself under threat uh, to show its kind of face once again. Uh, And yeah, so from 1994 to 2001 until October of 2001, uh, a month after the tragic um, uh, events of the September the 11th, when Taliban were removed from power, uh, we had um, this uh, new force, quite in in many ways resembling. I don't want to uh, be too deterministic about these things, but we have to remember Kalakani and his approach to power. By then, about 80 years earlier, um uh and taliban in many ways embodied or capitalized and embodied um on, capitalized on and embodied the same sort of sensibilities um it's just that just like uh it's too bad that just like with kalakani who found um who whose monarchy found itself isolated and set up for failure uh, the taliban themselves too were incredibly isolated and they were set up for failure um, and that is, in in the end, that's kind of what, what happened.
0: So with, what would you say um, was US um, reason to uh, go into Afghanistan? And do you think it's justified? Like, I mean, from accounts, official accounts, they would say that uh, the Taliban was associated, with the, um, I guess the terrorist attacks that occurred in the U.S., so the U.S. is trying to um, protect its sovereignty. It's trying to protect itself from um, the Islamic world, which is they believe are trying to destroy it, and they're yeah. using that as, um, I guess you could say, as an excuse to try to occupy the Middle East and the Near East. Um, do you yeah. think that's a fair assessment of what why the U.S. tried to um, or well why they occupied Afghanistan and do you think it's justified in any way? No. Do you have any comments
1: no. on that? Right. So look. Um, so there. It's it's a very it's a very dense conversation. All right. So there are too many <laughs> a lot of kind yeah. of overlying, uh, factors in here, and and I I don't think we should simplify these things. I don't think we should. I don't think we should reduce these conversations because they're right. not. It's not. I wish it was just like a linear account of like this happened, and then that happened, and then this, this and then this, this is the situation we end up with. The sad reality is that uh, many different forces coalesce and give us sort of these violent realities um, that are experienced primarily by people who or nameless to us, who are just a number at most to us. In other cases, not even a number. We don't even know. We don't even find out about their suffering and what they go through, which is the reality of war on terror has been for 20 years for Afghans. But look, uh, what happened was, I think, uh, in in, uh, late 2001, once the September 11 attack happens, the West there's a there's a there's a book uh, by Derek Gregory. It's called Colonial Present. Came out over a decade ago now, but I think he does a really good job of explaining. And then we have really other good critical accounts as well, I should say. But I'm just thinking of Derek Gregory right now. Uh, he explains how when when the attacks on Twin Towers and Pentagon materializes, it's not just an attack on the US and its imperialist policies uh, in the Middle East. It is framed as an attack on western civilization as a whole the twin towers stood for the zenith of western power western hubris western self-confidence and assuredness of its um, liberal ideals and their truthfulness when an attack uh, when they, when the twin towers crumbles uh, that self-assuredness and that confidence in self and even that power itself somehow feels to be on shaky grounds, a lot shakier grounds than than we were ever willing to accept or come to terms with on our own. There had to be a backlash. There had to be vengeance in place. And for that vengeance or for that um, retribution to come across as uh, dramatic, as visible, uh, in many ways mimicking the acti- the tactics of the very terrorist organizations that uh, we were going after, right? Obviously al-Qaeda rebels in, in theatricality, and I think the Americans and their NATO allies and other allies uh, kind of started, or had already subscribed to the same methods, uh, because of course discourse uh, is as much power as power itself is in the naked sense of the word. Um, but anyway, so we're not going to go into too much detail, but just uh, that Af- Afghanistan at the time, no, of course, we knew the Taliban directly would not condone. They came out as one of the initial states, if you can call them that, to denounce what happened in New York and in Pentagon. But So, of course, Taliban were not, could not be implicated directly, but indirectly they could be, because, of course, al-Qaeda were living in their midst. They were hosted in Afghanistan and so on and so forth. So, what? but Al-Qaeda itself is a non-state actor, right? It doesn't have a territory on its own. It cannot claim a territory on its own. And it, that produces a real problem because on the one, on the one hand, there is this uh, there is sort of fervor for vengeance and, and retaliation. Um, and on the other hand, we don't know where to strike. We don't know who to strike. So the Taliban and Afghanistan, and this is where the crux of the story is, to me anyway, it, uh, it in a way, plays, um, uh, uh, I suppose, the role of a replacement for the non-territoriality of Al-Qaeda. So if Al-Qaeda is a specter of a force, right, in the greater scheme of things, uh, if Al-Qaeda cannot quite help quench our thirst for vengeance, then we'll go after... What could be uh, uh, what could be used as a um, the next sort of place or the next people that we can attack and exact that revenge and hopefully we'll feel satisfied at the end. So Afghanistan uh, displaces the non-territoriality of Al Qaeda and Taliban, of course, by association uh, comes as part of that package. That's what happened. But if you look closely at that period and the conversations that were taking place, there was a lot of potential by the Taliban. And this is not to condone the Taliban Emirates at all, but we just have to be honest and I think not reduce, as I said earlier, these complex political dynamics. The Taliban were willing to negotiate. They were even willing to hand over to Al-Qaeda leadership to a third uh, state for them to be tried, uh, tried. Uh, what they called tried fairly and under Islamic jurisprudence. Um, They also, I think, expected a degree of um, understanding and perhaps uh, compassion, something that was not going to come their way from the Western world or least of all from the US in the aftermath of September 11. Uh, But they were expecting a degree of understanding in terms of the difficult situation that they found themselves. Remember, that traditional force that I'm talking about it values things that perhaps in the Western modern sensibility or imaginaries, we couldn't care less about. It's about hospitality. It's about looking after the uh, you know the it, 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 it's this communal kind of uh, code or uh, tribal code um, that in Afghanistan, we for example, we call it Pashtunwali, you know it's things like male Mastia or hospitality. So if someone needs a refuge. Um, you you have to play host and look after them, irrespective of who that person is. Um, and that's they wanted to the world to understand where they were coming from, and the world was not going to. The modern world will not condone anything that parochial and that um, I don't know provincial, right? Uh, so the occupation starts. Uh, and uh, just quickly going back to your question, whether I think it's justified or not. I don't think it's justified at all. I don't think it should have uh, went down the path that it did because if uh, we were paying any attention, and there were people who warned um, the Americans quite early on, uh, this was always going to end in the way that it did. And when I say that, I don't mean the mechanics of how the occupation played out. We don't have a magic you know, ball to look into and look into the future. But we know the degree of suffering and victimization that took place as a result of the war on terror over the two decades. Um, uh, the 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 collective suffering that Afghans have gone through, the destruction of the country, um, and the consequences of it, which is the coming to power of a singular, singularly minded uh, power uh, in the name of Taliban right now. That many millions of afghans 36 37 million of afghans have now to bear the realities of right of our miscalculations and our hubris in the west and our desire to uh, devour our, our other to annihilate our enemy uh, because that's the only way that we feel like revenge could be exacted so it, it's a pretty tragic set of consequences that emanated from a decision that uh, i think was ill advised unjustified and should have been avoided altogether and could have been avoided altogether quite early on, but it just it just didn't happen. The other thing is, of course, we cannot reduce the whole of the fiasco to a singular moment as much as we do that. We, 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 we like to paint 9-11 as this earth-shattering event that, that redefined what was the norm all around the world and will continue to do so, to do so for who knows how long to come. But the fact is that, 9-11 happened within a unique a particular contextual reality that goes back in time and some of the things that ajay we talked about today i think uh, is part of the story of 9-11 just like they're part of the story of afghanistan and it's it's horrible heart-wrenching tragedy uh, that that we all either observe some in in, in case of my family uh, have had to live through and 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 it was a part of their their life for as long as it was. Uh, but we, we we shouldn't just reduce it to that one event or even that one month of series of decision making. You know, a lot of a lot of populist kind of books or accounts try to uh, focus too much on the technicalities of the decision making process. But we got to go back. These forces, you know, why was it that the in the sixties in Afghanistan uh, things had to change as dramatically as it did? Or what about the the Red Press? What was that potential? That sort of stubborn insistence on a reimagination of a country in a dramatic and and, and revolutionary sense. Uh, the Marxists, the Islamists, the American support for the Islamists, um, uh, and all how all of that radicalism uh, has a hardening influence on native traditional forces uh, and kind of whether we can avoid all of those things it requires for a lot more introspection and inward looking for the western world to uh as much as it does of course for the global south uh, so that we can come to i suppose uh, a a set of political imaginaries that speaks to our local realities without having too many globalist agendas that's always the problem here we we try to I think universalize and homogenize our societies. We try to impose a certain order in our societies, but we gotta. I feel like um, work on ways to socialize power. Work on ways to to, towards devolution of power, not centralization of power. And revolutionary forces do not rely on devolution of power. They do not rely on socialization of power. They, They they instead believe in hierarchies and order and regimes of power. That's always going to uh, have very violent consequences for the common people, for the subaltern class of, uh, of, of you know, uh, population.
0: Well, thank you so much, uh, Majid, for your time today. I uh, feel like I've learned a lot, but um, I also need to do way more research to understand what's happening with um, the Afghan situation. And um, do you have... Any way for people to contact you in the future, in case they would like to uh, find out more about Afghanistan? And
1: Well, I want to thank you, Ajay, for again showing interest uh, in Afghanistan and uh, uh, for giving me this opportunity to talk at length. I enjoyed this because we, could, we, could, we took our time, and that's so important to take your time, to not simplify or reduce the complexities of, of that situation. So I want to thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk, and for your listeners, I'm on Twitter um, uh, at uh, yeah. So how the handle is at Mujib Abed, Um, and yeah, we can we can we can keep in touch that way. I, I should also say I'm working with like a like a very local small charity organization that's run by some friends of mine in Kabul it's called a house of safety if uh, you know anybody wanted to help in any way shape or form you could volunteer your time you know you could donate you could uh, give us ideas as to how to uh, help folks back home we're open to anything so get in touch with me please uh, please and uh, we can continue the conversation there
0: hi before you go if there's any topics you'd like me to cover or people you'd like me to speak to please comment in the section below or reach out at Ajay Clody on Twitter. See you in the next podcast.